Defectors. Hello and welcome to episode three of Academic Defectors. I'm your host, Jillian Marshall, PhD, with a guest today who is something of a social media influencer. And not just for posting selfies, although hers are very nice. You can find our guest's activities on Twitter and LinkedIn where she prolifically conducts surveys on and solicits and shares experiences of transitioning out of academia into stable careers, particularly in tech, where our guest finds themselves now. Ashley Ruba, PhD, completed her undergraduate studies at Duke University and moved on to the University of Washington in Seattle for a doctorate in cognitive psychology. After completing her PhD in 2019 with a dissertation titled the development of emotion understanding in infancy, our guest was offered a prestigious postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And while everything seemed to be lining up on paper, Ashley found that something wasn't quite feeling right inside. And today shares with us her inspiring story of following her intuition, learning to trust herself, and ultimately finding happiness on the other side of academia. So without further ado, Ashley Ruba, PhD. Thank you for having me. <laughs> to uh, just get a sense of how you ended up in academia, I'm very curious to know what your goals were when you were starting out as an undergrad. What were you thinking about career-wise and in terms of courses of study that you wanted to pursue? Yeah, so I entered, I did my undergrad at Duke and I entered, I wanted, wanted to go to med school of all things. Um, my parents didn't go to college and I was just under the impression that smart people go to medical school. Um, and I think also being at Duke for undergrad, there's a large portion of undergraduates who start off being pre-med um, and then moved from wanting to do wanting to do psychiatry to wanting to do clinical psychology, wanting to be a therapist. Um, and then I feel like many, also like many clinical psychology hopefuls, I changed my focus once again, once I started doing research and I ended up in a developmental psychology lab studying infant language development and was just really fascinated by how babies learn. And yeah, after, after a few years of doing this, I was like, wow, I really like research. I thought it was really fun and really liked studying developmental psychology in particular. And I was like, I'm going to get a PhD and like go into research. And at that point, I was you know, told that if you really like research, you should be a faculty member at a R1 tenure track. And I was like, okay, that seems like the only career option. Um, and so I'm just going to pursue that. And so I ended up getting my PhD in developmental psychology, studying infant emotion learning. And, and then after that, yeah, I just really, I really thought I was going to be a faculty member. And that's what my career goal was for probably over 10 years. It's really interesting what you're saying, because it seems like many, many of us that go on to do a PhD, you had all these different interests that you were kind of testing out as an undergrad. It wasn't like, I'm going to go and I'm going to be a lawyer. Yeah. I'm going to major in, you know, political science or history or whatever, and I'm going to go to law school and that's it. I feel like those of us who do PhDs, and certainly your experience is kind of a testament to this. We're very intellectually promiscuous, as I would put it. <laughs> intellectually have a lot of interests, and not only just in a variety of topics, but in how they all connect with one another, in this broader schism of how these fields intersect. Is that, would you say that's accurate for your undergrad experience? Yeah, for sure. And I, 
you know, I think if I had ended up in maybe a different a different psychology lab, like I could have been interested in slightly different things, but I just really liked these particular research questions that were brought up in my lab at the time. And I ended up doing my honors thesis. It was a collaborative project between um, one of my undergraduate advisors. He was a developmental psychologist studying infant language learning. And then another faculty member who was a social affective neuroscientist. He knew a lot about emotion, but not a developmental psychologist. And so I kind of became the bridge between this infant developmental psychology learning person and this social scientist who knew a lot about emotion, but not development. And so I ended up being really interested in how young children learn about other people's emotions. And those, those are like the questions that propelled me for the rest of my career. But it was really like being the bridge and like trying to pull all of these like disparate threads from social psychology and cognitive psychology and developmental psychology all together was really what I found to be really interesting and, and challenging in a good way. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's fascinating and it, it makes me, I, I, and maybe this is getting too Freudian, even though Freud was just like clearly a patriarchal hack. But, uh, <laughs> this is true. <laughs> I'm more of like a Carl Jung, kind of, but anyway, not to get too Freudian here to use like yeah. a, you know, popular parlance, but you mentioned that you were the first person in your family to go to college and then you go, you're off to Duke, which is one of the best schools in the country. Are you from North Carolina originally? Yes, I am. Where? The Raleigh area. Okay. So my mom lives in Raleigh. That's kind of funny. Okay. Yeah, cool. She's been living there since 2005, since I went to undergrad. I actually know the area really well. And Yeah. I, I grew up in Apex specifically, if you know where that is. Okay. Apex is cute. Yeah. That's Yeah. It's, it's cute. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like I, I grew up and, you know, Duke is like one of the best schools in North Carolina, like, and I don't know, I just like, I always thought I would like go to Duke for undergrad because I was really, I was really into school, like straight A student and people were just like, oh yeah, of course, like you'll go here. Like it's really, that's where like smart people go. So yeah, not, not having like a lot of guidance from my parents or even like other people, I feel like in a lot of ways like throughout my career, I was just kind of very open to being a very like suggestible of like thing or like, maybe you should this, do this thing. And that's how I ended up in academia for so long because everyone was like, oh yeah, you should like be a professor. Like this would be a great career path for you. And I didn't really question it until about a year ago. <laughs> well, especially too, as an undergrad, when you're trying out all these different majors, what happened with me, and maybe this resonates with you. I went into, I went to the University of Chicago for my undergrad. And I was a really serious classical musician in high school. Oh, wow. When I went to U Chicago, of course, this is a place that's nicknamed where fun goes to die. It doesn't exactly have the most creative kind of atmosphere to it. It's not the kind of place. It's not a conservatory. It's not necessarily, you know, artistically creative, although I will say intellectually, it was very, I think, a truly radical institution in a lot of ways, because it's the same place that produced Bernie Sanders and like Milton Friedman, godfather of like trickle down, like, you know, free market economics. Yeah. So I appreciate that you Chicago, you could really go there mentally. Um, I feel like Duke kind of maybe in a similar way, because it's very, it's one of like the best schools, but it's also Southern and it's proud to be Southern. So it kind of links these two ideologies that makes it, I think, kind of special. I see your wheels turning. Yeah. Yeah. I think... Yeah, it's. I was trying. To, I was trying to think of like how southern Duke is because when I was there, it was maybe ten or fifteen percent of the undergraduates were from North Carolina, and most people were from like New York or California. Right, right. And so yeah, it's also not. I mean, I I knew some people who were in the arts, and I actually like I 
I did a lot of creative writing courses when I was at Duke as well. But yeah, it's definitely like really science heavy. Um, obviously, like the medical campus is enormous and very prestigious and a lot of focus on STEM and science and engineering and not so much in the arts for sure. Right. So I guess going back to, you know, where you come from, your roots, you know, Apex, North Carolina, and you're the first person in your family to go to college and off you go to not only college, but like the college. This is, I mean, that and like, you know, of course, Chapel Hill, but yeah. <laughs> what do they say? Like Duck Fook? No, that's what they say at Chapel Hill. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a go to hell Carolina is the Duke, the Duke saying for Carolina. Oh, okay. No, I've learned something. Well, uh, anyway, did you feel when you were an undergrad and you're kind of being prepped for grad school by your professors, right? Like you should think about grad school. You should think about doing a PhD. Were you thinking in the back of your head at all about like, I'm going to have job security. I'm going to have like, this could be great. Like I'm going to have like a prestigious job because you know I come from blue collar roots too. And part of what seduced me to academia was like, oh, tenure, that sounds great. I'm, I grew up kind of in a financially, not the most my parents are amazing and they are so great and I wouldn't change a thing about my childhood, but we didn't have any money. I was like really aware growing up, like I, I don't want this to be me. I want to have a good job. Did you have any of that too? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think my parents, like not having gone to college, they were always very insistent with at least my sister and I, like, well, you two are going to go to college. Like it was never a question that I was at least going to go to undergrad. I actually like I had wanted to go to grad school since I was really young, which sounds kind of sounds kind of weird, but I just I liked school so much and I was just like, you know, what is the hot what is like the best like the best, the highest degree that I can get? Like that's what I want. And I didn't know what in. I was like a I wanted to be like an astronaut when I was really young. Oh my god, me too. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know like the career path for that necessarily. But yeah, I knew that I like I wanted to go to grad school in some capacity. So I like I entered Duke first thinking I would go to med school and get an MD and then afterwards like oh I'm gonna get a PhD but I didn't really think about the career that I wanted I thought I would get a PhD in clinical psych and then become a therapist and then once I decided that I really liked research it seemed like the only career option that was presented to me was being a faculty member but I wasn't really thinking about job security necessarily and I this is what I tell people all the time who ask me like oh do you think I should do a PhD and I always ask them, like, well, what career do you want? And this was not something that anyone ever asked me. It was very much like, I'm going to get a PhD because I really want to be in school forever. And I really, like, just want to keep being a student and want to keep learning. And I didn't really think about what careers I could have or, like, how to make more money or anything like that. But, yeah, I think there was some assumption from my parents that, like, at least getting an undergrad degree or like any kind of college degree would like set me up for the rest of my life. Like that was definitely the mentality. Right. I'm sure some of that carried on to a PhD because like, why, why wouldn't it? You're just like getting the highest degree that anyone has. Exactly. It's like, oh, this is like varsity level college. That like guarantee some sort of job. And then now we, that's like not necessarily true. <laughs> this should like triple my chances for a job. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you're really right because you're, you're bringing up this point that for those of us who do PhDs, we're taught going in. And I, especially for me, I, mean, I was in the humanities, getting a job equals being a professor. Yeah. And I did my PhD at Cornell. Okay. There was no talk about what happened if you left. It was, you will get a job. And if you don't get a tenure track, and that means being a tenure track professor at an R1 research institution. Mm -hmm. yep. Or a liberal arts college, if you're a little funky, you know, mixing it up. 
And if you don't do that, then you need to make sure, and I will never forget in one of the professional development colloquia that we had, I probably was a second year. And this professor, she was like, if you don't get a tenure track job right out, you, you should make sure that you get a job that's at least peripherally connected to the academy. And she cited her own personal experience working at the, she was from the University of Chicago too, but she did her PhD at UC Berkeley. And then she moved back to Chicago and worked at the University of Chicago Press doing like, I think like clerical work. Okay. So she was like, you know, even though I wasn't teaching, I was still on a college campus. I was still there. And you have to, and these were her words that were seared into my brain. You have to show your dedication. And I'm like, wait a minute. What about just the quality of my work and my ability to teach? What about this like showing of my dedication? And what I think a lot of people don't understand is that once you're in grad school, for better, for worse, I think there's definitely this mystique about the academic world. It makes you feel like, you know, I've written about this, but like makes you feel like you're a wizard or like, oh yeah. Right. Like I literally called my office, the wizard office. Like when I was a TA, like <laughs> yeah. when you're in the cult, it protects you. Yeah. But then when wait a minute, they, they, it's like they cast you out and you're, you're relevant. Oh, for sure. I think there's also, um, I mean, so like my PhD is in psychology. So I think it was maybe like, like there, I think there are maybe like clear paths now, but I feel like at least when I was going through, like getting my PhD in developmental psychology, there were no other career options like laid out for me. Um, and then, I mean, plenty of PhDs like go on to have there are a bunch of like developmental psych think tanks and like research institutions and things like that, that hire PhDs. Where did you go to school? Um, the University of Washington. Oh yeah. In Seattle. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, which is where, where I moved, I moved back to after I quit my postdoc. Um, <laughs> cause I love Seattle, but yeah, I think there's just like a lot of myths that I, I was told, like a lot of things that are not true about jobs outside of academia. And it, they really like put academic jobs on this pedestal of like, Oh, you have all this freedom and autonomy. Every professor was like, this is the best job in the world. And they just make it sound so enticing. And they also make any other job sound like you're just at a nine to five desk job and you have someone who's like telling you what to do and you have no autonomy and no freedom. And it's just, it's awful. It's it's just funny because none of these professors have actually worked in a non-academic job. Um, people constantly like, well, do you have any freedom? Do you have any autonomy? And I'm like, who told you that you wouldn't have like freedom and autonomy in any other job other than being a faculty member? So it's like super, super pervasive things that I told, I was told and I like believed because like, why wouldn't I? You're, you're hitting on something really key, which is this, pers- this idea that getting an academic job is like the best thing you could possibly do with in your, in your life. And it's coming from people who have probably never been in the world to begin with. And I, I remember when I was in grad school, it was, I'd come back from a year in Japan doing field work. I did contemporary Japanese music. So like going to parties and stuff. And that was by design. It was like, I'm going to research something fun and like, which was, which was great while it lasted. Well, in that phase anyway, <laughs> but I moved into a one bedroom apartment. It was kind of expensive. And I was like, you know, I also feel like I am living full time in my brain and I just kind of want to break from all this and I'm teaching my own class. I'm teaching like, you know, when it was time to grade essays, oh my God, you're working like 40 hours a week and you're getting paid. Well, Cornell paid us pretty well. I won't complain about that, but considering what the professors were making and the amount of work I was doing, yeah, it was like, okay, I'm just going to go get a waitressing job. So I worked at this like upscale Chinese restaurant next to Cornell. I remember I told one of my dissertation advisors like, oh yeah, I got a job waitressing. And he looked at me with like, oh, that's like bad. And I was like, no, I like it. Everyone's really nice. And I, 
and it really helped mature my understanding of money in particular. Yes, it's waiting tables. Is that like the best career a person could possibly have? I mean, if that's, it's not the worst, you know, I didn't want to wait tables forever, but it was just a great thing for me to do to get out of my head, learn to interact with people. And I just, I'll never forget that look on my advisor's face where he was just like, apologize. There is no shame in me doing this. Mm -hmm. And it benefited me tremendously. When I moved to New York to start over, I worked, I waited tables at this like mafia connected Italian restaurant. That was like the best thing I could have possibly done to like introduce myself to this wild and crazy place. And yeah, I just, no one's ever left the academic world. And maybe it's like, they're afraid. Maybe they've just been there so long, but they just. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely, I definitely have like felt that from, from faculty and yeah, it's, it's a, it's interesting because I, I work with a bunch of people who, you know, they don't have PhDs who I work with at my current job and they're all like brilliant, brilliant people. Um, and I mean, I even think about like my, my dad, for example, who, you know, he dropped out of high school, went back and got his GED and he can like, like had training and being like an auto mechanic and can basically like fix anything. I can't do that. I don't have these kind of like practical skills to where I can figure out like what's like wrong with a car and just be able to like fix that on my own. And it's like a very different skill set. And I think to be like, well, the smartest people work in academia and like anywhere else, you're just like, that's not what like smart people do. It's just like really elitist. And then on the other hand, I also get messages from faculty members, sometimes with tenure every single week being like, I'm leaving academia. Like, don't tell anyone, but I like want to leave. And I like, I need your help. So you have people who have made it to like the very top and they're still like, they're like, this is it. This isn't what there has to be more than this. Right. And I mean, it's just not what they thought it would be. And I think those stories are like really interesting and powerful to hear because you have someone who like, quote unquote, made it and they're still, they're like, no, this isn't, this isn't what I thought it would be. A hundred percent. And even personally, it can be really challenging. One of my, mm -hmm. two of my really good friends from grad school, we're all uh, musicologists. They ended up getting married to each other in a long distance marriage now for coming up on five years because they both got tenure track jobs, one at SUNY Potsdam and one at University of Michigan. Yeah. And even the spousal hire loophole doesn't work if it's two musicologists. And my friend at SUNY Potsdam, you know, she's like, I, I'm thinking about just giving it up and I'd have to start from scratch, but that's scary. And like, that's a whole other area too of people that I think we're going to be seeing more of because especially now I mean now I feel like it's this really interesting moment mm -hmm. where lay people are kind of like starting to realize along with PhDs also realizing that there's a crisis in academia there's a book called leaving academia by Christopher Catterin I've read this book I love this book yeah yes he has this statistic that 93% of PhDs are not going on to the tenure track mm -hmm. as of 2020. Oh, yeah. Imagine if 93% of people who did JDs did not become lawyers because, oh, we don't have any jobs and, oh, you need to practice law and get no money and no benefits as an adjunct lawyer for five years to show your dedication. Yeah. No one would do it. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, absolutely. And I think there's definitely, I think, a lot of thinking that people should do before they agree to do a PhD and one is considering, you know, what career options you have, because not all PhDs are 
created equal. Mm-hmm. I've, I've talked to a lot of PhD, like history PhDs, for example, and like they are having like, there just aren't any jobs and they're having like a really hard time compared to someone like me who's in a STEM field. Like, I think I have an easier time. There are companies that are hiring people who have PhDs. Um, like my current role isn't a PhD level role, um, but I applied to other jobs where they did want someone who had a PhD. So it is, I think like at least in, in science, I think PhDs can be valuable, but they need to be like much better about, you know, we are training like the next generation of scientists, not necessarily like the next generation of faculty members. And I think there's, there's still use for PhDs um, in the sciences for sure. But I think it's in, it's in the humanities. You really need to be clear about why am I getting this degree? And because otherwise it's just going to be the people who have like intergenerational wealth and can, you know, spend five years barely making any money and just like, oh, I'm just going to like tinker around with this like for like five to six years. You're, you're spitting so many facts. And before we get into what you do now, which of course I want to delve into, I'm really curious about your grad school journey. So you arrive at University of Washington, you're in Seattle, you're like all about this cool new town. And you're like, I've made it, I've made it to the other side. I've written um, in my first book, I wrote about how getting your acceptance letter to a PhD program, for me, it felt like unwrapping the golden ticket with Willie Walker. Yeah. I'm in, I'm golden, I'm good. So my first couple years of grad school, I was like, I'm going to play this game and I'm going to win it. What about you? Were you? What were you feeling when you first arrived on campus? Yeah, I think, so I like had grown up, as we talked about, in North Carolina. So I had never lived anywhere else. And so I was moving across the country to a place where I didn't know anyone. And so that was like, I think that was like hard for me. Um, and fortunately, like I met, I met some of people who are still my best friends, like within a few months of moving there. Um, and I think like the first year was just like really hard in terms of like getting my bearings. I, a few months after I moved there, my boyfriend at the time broke up with me because I had moved. And so it was just like a lot of like my personal life really overshadowed my like first year of grad school. But yeah, I think I was, I was just told by everyone that like I was extremely talented and cut above the rest. And I was like, definitely going to be the one who made it. And at that point I had won like a few awards for like my undergraduate work. And so I was, you know, came in feeling like really confident, like, oh yeah, I'm like super smart and talented and like, yeah, that's competitive, but like, I'm definitely going to make it. And then at some point, I think during my third year, I just, I think the imposter syndrome like really started to set in. And I was like, I actually like don't know what I'm doing. I'm actually not that smart. And just really, really, really started doubting myself. Um, served on an academic, like a, a faculty search committee in my fourth year. That really, that really made things worse because then I was just seeing how like all these very qualified people of these amazing CVs none of them were getting interviews for our one job that we were hiring for. And at that point, I'm just like, there's no, there's like no hope for me. Like, I don't, my CV's not this good. And I feel like it took a very, very, and I think grad school has a tendency to do this. Like I came in like very confident and motivated and like, I'm going to do really well. And then by the end, I was just like, I'm, you know, at that point, like so much more accomplished, like know so much more about my field. I am an expert. And then I feel so bad about myself and feel like such an imposter and have so much anxiety. And I also, you know, came into grad school, like having an anxiety disorder that was like kind of managed. And then by my second year, it was very unmanaged. Unfortunately, I was able, 
I was in therapy for like four of my five years of grad school and that really helped, but it was, it was really, really hard. That sounds really difficult. And like the imposter syndrome came up during the times where you're like, I mean, it makes sense where you're put to the test. I mean, I'm imagining during your third year, you had your qualifying exams, right? And then of course the (laughs) you versus yourself race to the finish that is the dissertation. And you brought up the search committee too, and I think is very salient. I also, I didn't serve on the committee, but um, we needed a new ethnomusicology faculty hire. So I was one of the grad students that they were consulting. And at that point, I think I was the only ethnomusicologist on campus. There was Mm -hmm. only three of us total, and they were in the field when we were doing this search. And all these, again, like hyper-qualified people were submitting applications. And then the person that we gave the job to ended up turning down Cornell. They were like, oh my God, we're going to lose our funding. We have to just hire someone. The next person in line, go. And they ended up hiring someone that ended up, um, she was one of the th- reasons that I started to wonder, what, what, what is this place that I found myself in? I had to take her seminar for like political reasons, you know, because she was the new ethno hire. And yeah. my whole thing was, we need a methods course. I'm going to anthropology, and <laughs> which is great. You know, I love that Cornell was very interdisciplinary. I could go to different departments and it wasn't a big deal. We didn't have like a strong core curriculum and that was the point. But, but if there's no curriculum at all for me, where's the accountability? Where's the education? I came in pretty self-motivated and I'm a pretty independent person regardless. So I was like, okay, great. I work better without people breathing down my neck anyway. I made the most of it, but we need a methods course. Mm-hmm. So I had to take her methods course and she tried to fail me because of ideas that ended up getting me a Fulbright scholarship. That was one of the reasons, it was the beginning of the end, I would say in some ways. The politics of watching a job search mm-hmm. and just seeing how it's not a meritocracy. It doesn't matter how good your work is, it's luck or at least a high degree of luck. Oh, for sure. Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, in our our search, we had like some minimum number of publications that you had to meet. And then so many people met that minimum threshold. And then at that point, yeah, the decisions became like, well, whose research do the committee think is like the most interesting or things that are said in letters of recommendation or like, not like how many papers do they have or like how many awards that they won. And, you know, I've seen like, oh, this person has like a $5 million grant, but like that doesn't matter because they don't think that this person could actually form collaborations in the department. And then you're cut for that reason. And so I don't know if that makes people feel like better. It didn't make me feel better when I like went on the academic job market when I wasn't getting interviews to be like, oh, it's luck. I like, I really took it personally. And I'm like, oh my, I'm just like not good enough. Um, And at that point, like when I went on the job market, I had 15 first author papers and I won multiple dissertation awards and like objectively, I met and exceeded like every criteria that you could have to like get a faculty position. And it just didn't work out for me, which is totally fine. And like, I'm kind of glad it didn't because I, I don't know that I would have been like happy at the end of the day. And that's what I had realized. I had a friend who we did a postdoc together and he got a tenure track faculty job at his dream university. And he started that when I was in my third year of my postdoc. And I just saw how stressed he was. Like here, he had made it, he had gotten this job and he just was still so unhappy and just so stressed. It was now like, well, now I have to worry about getting tenure. And that was also really eye-opening for me. And I'm like, it's never going to end. Even if I got my dream job, it's not going to, I just, I'm like, life's too short to be unhappy. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to do this. <laughs> That's really profound. I mean, like you said, you, you won these awards, which I'm sure were very well-deserved and, you did really well. You ticked all these boxes. And 
you didn't go right to the tenure track, but you, as far as I understand, you got a very prestigious postdoc, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Cause I was also, you know, being on the, being on the search committee, like the only people we invited out to interview were people who had had postdocs. And I was kind of told, you know, like the job market is so competitive. You just shouldn't even apply when you're a grad student, like you need to have a postdoc. So I never had intended to apply for faculty positions when I was a grad student. Um, at that point, I was a bit jaded from academia and I was actually considering other options. I only ended up applying to the one postdoc. And I'm like, you know, if I get it, which I won't get, <laughs> then I'll do it and I'll keep like riding the academia train. And if I don't get it, then, you know, I, I really loved Seattle. Like all of my friends were here. I didn't want to leave. And, you know, I know multiple people who have gone into UX research. I actually had Google and Microsoft trying to recruit me for but then I got this fellowship and again was told, you know, you're one of the best applicants that we've ever had. Like you're definitely going to be like tenure track R1, top 20 university. It just, it was impossible for me to say no at that point. And that was uh, 2019. So we all know what happened the year after, which was the first year of my postdoc. And had COVID not happened, I'd probably be a professor right now. But, you know, for me and for, I mean, the great resignation is a thing for a reason. I think a lot of people just kind of woke up and they were like, maybe I don't want this career that I'm in. Maybe it's not making me happy and maybe I should think about something else. So I definitely like think about what would have happened if COVID didn't happen. Um, so I can't wait to hear about your transition into industry, but I'm, I'm dying to know more about this mysterious postdoc that you got. <laughs> You know, you're getting these offers, but you've been in academia for so long that you're like, you know, I'll ride this train, go where the door is open. Yeah. So you get this postdoc and where was it? The University of Wisconsin-Madison. Oh, very nice. Okay. Um, Go Badgers. Yep. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so you're at this postdoc and it's like you get a reasonable, amount of, a reasonable amount of security. And one thing too, I just have to say, a lot of people like, you know, my family, your family, they're like, wait, postdoc, what is that? Aren't you a professor? No, I'm like researching and yeah. gearing up to be a professor. And I remember my family was like, what do you mean? Aren't you qualified already? <laughs> they just didn't understand and I don't blame them, but I didn't apply for any postdocs. I was so stressed and mentally unwell and just unhappy um, by the end of my dissertation. And I felt so split between my life in the US and then being like this underground it girl, Buddhist dancer in Japan, <laughs> I want to be a bohemian. So for me, like I never applied to any postdocs. I did one semester of adjuncting where I got treated like absolute scum. Yeah. The students loved me. The professors like would send me like snide emails being like, it'd be a very nice gesture if the adjunct faculty contributed to they called it the sunshine fund you know oh there's a birthday party first of all they had my name as jennifer marshall on the website oh. <laughs> of all, it was like you didn't throw me a birthday party. you don't even know my birth why am i contributing to your sunshine <laughs> anyway so you're at this postdoc further up this himalayan hill mm -hmm. and that was when you had your breaking point tell me about it yeah um so yeah this postdoc was like an nih t32 so it was a training grant it was a three-year fellowship and it was not tied to a particular faculty member which was really important to me i mean postdocs my goal was like i'm going to publish everything from grad school and then i'm going to really start showing that i have some separation from my advisors and like developing my own independent program of research which i feel like i had already had like a lot of separation from my graduate advisor um yeah i was like this will be like prestigious and it'll help me get a faculty job and 
yeah, so I, I moved to Wisconsin, which I had never been to Wisconsin, never lived in the Midwest. And I had moved September 2019. And then in March, six, like six months later, my whole university shut down. And I had a plan to apply to faculty jobs in 2020 and 2021. And then they're just universities just were not hiring. Um, and really either of those years, but like particularly in 2020. So I didn't even apply to anything in 2020. It was funny because I had I had known people who had been postdocs for like five plus years. I'm like, I'm definitely not going to do that. I'm going to give myself the three years. If I get a faculty job, amazing, I'll do that. And if I don't, then I'm going to do something else, but I'm not going to be a postdoc forever. And, you know, it's funny because I actually, in my second year, I was like, well, but I didn't anticipate a global pandemic. Um, and so I applied for an NIH K99, which is like a five-year grant, which would have given me two more years of postdoc funding and then three years of faculty funding. So another like really prestigious grant. And I like submitted that and then was working. I'd actually like submitted the resubmission, um, like right at the start of my third year. So I was ignoring ignoring what I had planned to do and I was like you know if I get this I'll take a fourth and a fifth year and then surely like this grant will guarantee that I get a faculty job I applied to a few faculty jobs towards December 2021 I you know found out that I didn't get any interviews and at that point I was also had some like very unfortunate experience with tenured faculty member like bullying me in my department and it just kind of became clear to me that you know, I'm going to have to stay in my postdoc for another year and a half if I want to try to like get a faculty job. I don't want to be a postdoc anymore. Like I'm so over being a postdoc. I'm so over like not having any control over my life. And I felt like I was putting my life on hold. And I'm like, I want to choose where I live. And just really felt like at that point, that was the breaking point where I'm like, I could leave right now and get a job somewhere else. Or I stay for another year and a half no guarantee that I'll get a faculty job in the next round. And I just, I was like, I can't, I can't. I was so unhappy. I was so anxious. I was like, I just like, why am I doing this to myself? And then yeah, January, a year ago, I was just like, no, I'm done. I don't know what I'm going to do, but it's not going to be this anymore. That's so inspiring. Like, <laughs> honestly, like my hat's off to you. Here you were this academic wunderkind that, you know, was told you're the best of the best, which I'm sure you were. I mean, you're clearly very intelligent. And I will say, I think grants are where it's still like meritocratic reasonably because they don't know you. There's no yeah. politic. Can you write about your research? Can you show that your research is connective and relevant for the humanities? Reasonably interdisciplinary, but deep enough that you're the expert. Mm -hmm. I think grants are where people actually can demonstrate some sort of measurable skill. And it seems like you were killing it with grants. And then not getting a single interview must have been devastating and also must have just been like, you know what, am I going to have to jump up and down until, I mean, I'm not sure how old you are. I, I graduated in 2018. but Yeah, I graduated in 2019. I'm about to turn 32. So. Oh, okay. Okay, very nice. So the only reason I bring it up is because when I finished my PhD, I was 30 and I was just about to turn 31. This was 2018. And I want to start my life. Like I'm single. Mm -hmm. I feel just so haggard and unhappy. And, you know, I wrote about this too in my book, which is called Japantham Countercultural Experiences, Cross-Cultural Remixes. And uh, one of my dissertation advisors, actually the one that was very sad for me when I started waiting tables, I knew him when he was a postdoc at U Chicago. And in those days he was like in his mid thirties and he was already married and his wife was like an art historian, tenure track at Chicago. And then he had a rough time there as a postdoc. 
but he was still bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. Mm-hmm. And he was just like this British guy that would come in and he'd be like, oh, I forgot my recordings for our list today. So I'll just play on piano. And he was like really accomplished pianist. And I was like, he is living the life I want in my particular case as a, a musician and a, a thinker musicology like you're intellectual and you're musical at the same time which is what I craved and I was like wow this guy's got it figured out he ended up getting a tenure track track job at Cornell when I was applying to grad school a year later when I was living in Japan teaching English and he was like I'm at Cornell I see you're not applying here but you should Mm -hmm. but anyway I saw him go up for tenure at Cornell and that bright-eyed bushy-tailed he was it just completely went away and I saw how stressed out he was like your friend. And I was like, Oh my God, I don't think I want this life. I don't want to be 40 and jumping through hoops. Also too, you bring up this point that not a lot of people outside of the academic world Mm -hmm. realize is that you don't get to choose where you live. It's like, Oh, University of Nebraska, Omaha outpost is looking for someone for one semester. And like a traveling, like a traveling snake oil salesperson. Like, I don't want to do that. I want to live my life. I want to set down roots. I want to get to know people outside of this very niche world mm-hmm. who are multidimensional. And like you were saying about your father, which I thought was so poignant. Yeah. He can fix stuff. Talk about intelligence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, I think like choosing where I live was like really important to me. And I actually, I ended up moving back to North Carolina very briefly. And after I, after I like quit my postdoc, but then, yeah, I just, I really like, I wanted to be back in Seattle and being able to be like, I want to be in Seattle. Like I'm going to move. I found it. I found a job. Like I work at Meta now. Um, and like, I was able to just be like, okay, I'm going to move. I'm going to like move back to Seattle. Um, and I think, you know, as a, as a queer person who can become pregnant, I just, there's, I didn't feel safe, like living in North Carolina anymore. I realized that like when I was there and there's just, I think also like in June, like Roe got overturned and I was like, I want to be somewhere where I feel safe and where like all of my friends are here. And that's just not a, a move I would have been able to make had I still been in academia. I couldn't just like pick a city and be like, I'm going to move here. So that was like really important to me. Um, and yeah, I just, I really, as someone who like really struggles with anxiety, I just wanted to have like more control over my life. And it just felt like I was, I was like playing the lottery. Like that's what the academic job market is. It's a lottery and like maybe you win. And I just, I mean, I've, there's, there's been like plenty of like very prestigious qualified professors who like don't get tenure, mostly like Ivies, but I had seen this happen enough to where I'm like, you know, even I could be like completely amazing and still not get tenure and then you have to move again. It's just, it just never it never ends. So you didn't finish your postdoc. You left. Oh, yeah. No, I I quit. <laughs> That's great. I mean, I yeah. love that. You had like a semester left? Um, I decided in January that I was going to leave and I had funding through... I mean, my advisor would have paid me like beyond the fellowship and and I had applied for another grant that would have given me money, but like I had money to go through August. But I I like formally left in May after I like I had I started applying to non-academic jobs in January and then by March I had a few offers and then in May I was like officially done. Wow, wow. And one of those jobs was Meta. 
Um, no, so this is my second job. So one of the first job that I had was at a smaller consulting company called Bold Insight that was based in Chicago, actually, and doing doing New York's research as well. And it was a true entry level position. I learned a lot, got to work with a bunch of different industries, doing contracts. But after a few months in that role, I just got a bit bored. I really wanted to lead projects and design studies and you know, at that point, again, I was like living in North Carolina and like, I really want to move back to Seattle. So I saw, I saw this contract job at Meta. I, I had, I had done a contract at my old job for a tech company. And I was like, you know, I really like working in tech. I really want to work in hardware. This job is at Meta Reality Labs, which like used to be Oculus building like AR and VR, which is hardware. And I was like, this seems to check all the boxes. Like, I'm not going to get this job, but you know, I'll apply. And then I got the job. So there's, there's clearly like a theme here with me thinking I'm like, not going to, I'm like not good enough to get stuff. And then it like works out. So imposter syndrome never ends um, for anyone, anyone wondering. Um, it's still, it's still there, but, but yeah, I mean, my job, I really like my, my job. It's uh, everything I liked about academia with none of the things that I didn't like. So I'm so happy for you. I mean, you're, you're doing things on your own terms and you're learning how to trust yourself along the way, which I think is beautiful. Yeah, it is the hardest, the hardest thing and the thing I still struggle with, trusting myself. So that is, that is my current, my current goal. Well, I think you're doing it, especially because exactly. you know, it seems like your transition into industry, it seemed like it was actually quite smooth. You didn't have to go through a period of being desperately unemployed and trying to find a job. Any job will do yeah, I think I, I mean, like right now is kind of like a weird time for like transitioning into UX research. I think I, I got like very lucky in that I found a true entry level position. They are not very common. I mean, I did have to teach myself enough to like get through the interview process. Um, I had job off, I had like a couple other job offers at like other places. But yeah, I don't know. I think I had just at that point, I had really like read a lot about you know, how to market myself for non-academic jobs. I kind of knew knew what to do at that point. But I do think I also got like very lucky. And I do know people whose job search took a lot longer than mine, for sure. But yeah, so I, I will say like it was luck, but then I also like had to, I had already like learned a lot about what I needed to do to leave academia. Right. And it also, I'm curious too, to hear about how your training in academia prepared you for the actual duties of yeah. UX research? And if you wouldn't mind just explaining what UX research is. Yeah, yeah. So UX stands for user experience. So user experience research. Um, and this field's been around for, like UX has been around for as long as, long as I've been alive, more or less. Um, and basically it's, it's a social science research discipline where you're testing um, like products. And so products can vary. So you might be doing like websites or apps or like what I do is hardware mostly. Um, and so I work with augmented reality and virtual reality systems that are still five to 10 years out from actually being consumer products. So in this work, what I'm doing is I'm testing these products and like these early prototypes with people to make sure that these are things that people want and need and that things are easy to use. And if we're building features, people can learn how to use them really quickly. So if you've ever, you know, like I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a Apple person. So if you ever use like a Mac or an iPhone, the design and the ease of use for these products is like really, really good because they've done a lot of UX. And so psychology is actually like a really great discipline um, that gives you a lot of context into 
motivations and attention and behavior. And that's kind of like the foundation for UX is trying to understand what people want and need and how people behave. So in terms of, you know, marketable skills that I got during my PhD, definitely like research, like the whole research process, like how to design a study, how to collect data of human subjects, data analysis, report writing and things like that. UX tends to be more qualitative in nature. So having experience doing interviews or observations or ethnographies, like those, those are like really good skills. There are more quant-leaning UX positions where having survey design and data analysis skills are also important. Um, experimental design, for example, my current position is mixed methods. So I kind of do a little bit of everything, which I, I kind of like. And then other than that, like really, really like crucial skills that I learned were, you know, public speaking skills. So in particular, being able to explain my research to other people who may be not researchers. Um, so designers or prototypers, like people who are actually like building the prototypes that I'm using, being able to go back and tell them, you know, people hated this or people love this. Um, and having those communication skills is crucial. And then also being able to just write very succinctly and briefly because, you just have people's attention for like an instant and people are not going to dig through a 30 page research paper to figure out like what you did. They want to be brief. Tell me what you did. Tell me how you did it and tell us what you need to do next. So all of those have been like the most marketable skills and like the best skills that I've learned from my academic research training. But, you know, there's there's other stuff that you have to learn, too. Like, I knew nothing about product development at all or nothing about business. And these are things that I'm still learning about and having to teach myself, but it's like, it's fun. It all seems very on brand for you, especially this mixed media having like, I don't like the expression of finger in every pie, but I can't think of a different one. <laughs> You're testing out a bunch of different stuff at once and you can kind of exercise that intellectual capriciousness that drew you into academia and eventually out of in the first place, which is really kind of a full circle mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, I think like one thing, you know, my academic research was on infant emotion learning. So it's very different than what I'm doing now. I'm not doing babies, I'm not doing like emotions by and large. But I think what I like most about working in tech and working with babies is they're both very challenging spaces to be in. They're very ambiguous spaces to be in and they require a lot of creativity to figure out you know, how do you, how do you test what people want in technology that doesn't exist yet? Like AR glasses, augmented reality glasses, like don't exist. All these tech companies are building them and you have to do work on social acceptability because if, if people remember the time before smartphones, like I remember the time before smartphones, like no one had a smartphone. Um, and then all of a sudden you had like a computer in your pocket and like, that's essentially what we're trying to build. We're trying, like, what is the next what is the next smartphone? What is the next computer? What is the next thing that no one has right now, but then in 10 years, like so many people will have? Um, and how do you even test whether people want that or need that when people maybe can't even imagine what technology could be like? They don't even know what they want and need. So it's a, it's like a very challenging space. And I think I've realized that I really like research and the research process more than any specific research question. I think that's the thing that traps people in academia is this idea that I'll never be satisfied unless I'm studying this very niche topic, which is just not, I mean, for me and for a lot of other people, it's just not true. Same. No, absolutely. Even though that's also what drives the whole PhD gig to begin with is doing a niche topic. Oh yeah. So 
to close out here, I would love to hear your thoughts expounding upon something that you said earlier about what you think professors should be teaching students, be it in STEM, be it in humanities, because I do think, and when I just say, there are so many things that a person with a humanities background can do. It turns out ethnomusicology, people are interested in that. Like I've DJed on a radio show. I can do archival research. I can do, I teach languages. That's like a big source of income for me. Mm-hmm. Turns out a lot of people want to learn Chinese and Japanese and people in corporate settings. And it, you know, and for me too, like writing has been where I'm transitioning and, and music, but especially writing. But, you know, you know your your field best. You were talking about what you thought professors should be teaching PhDs in the academy today about what the parameters of a job are and how you provide training that isn't just, well, when you get tenure eventually, this is this will be useful. Would you would you mind just speaking a little bit more about what you think mm-hmm. academia should be doing to prepare PhDs better than this mess we're in? So I'm like on Twitter and LinkedIn and I ran a pretty informal poll last week being like, you know, how did it, did your department do anything for you? Like professional development wise for non-academic careers. And over half of the people I polled said they had ab- zero events, zero trainings, nothing. And I'm like, this is absurd because like most PhDs do not go into academia and yet they're not doing anything. They're not doing anything professional development wise. Um, I have seen a shift recently where I have actually been invited to serve on career panels or to give talks. Um, I'm also getting like paid to give talks now, which is like really cool. Um, and not, I was like, oh, like, sure, I'll like, go talk about my job for an hour and like how to move out of academia. Because I think there are a lot of professors who do are like very well-meaning and want to help and they just have no idea. So I think actually having people like me come in and talk and be like, hey, this is this is my job and like this is how I got my job and this is how you could get my job and like maybe this is interesting to you. So just having like more people come in and talk about their work, I think is really useful. And there's also programs like Beyond the Professoriate, for example, is a company that I really like. I found them when I was in my last year of grad school and they have a ton of resources uh, like the universities can actually buy a license with them to access all of these career development resources that they have. Um, and so I think just having more like formalized training like that, I mean, if anyone's interested, they have a, a podcast that's free right now that has a bunch of like really great job search advice that I really found valuable and I always recommend. But I think having ultimately like partnerships with companies will be really useful because the one thing I think that benefits grad students the most is actually being able to do an internship in an industry to figure out, do I like this job? And also to get experience. And I, it's funny because when I was a grad student, I had the opportunity to do an internship at Oculus, which is currently where I work. And I said, no, because I wanted to be a faculty member. And that's, you know, if I would have done this internship, maybe I would have been like, oh yeah, this is like really cool and interesting. And I like this work. And now I, now I work there. So um, I think having these, like these like pipelines between graduate training and just like knowing what the career options are and like having internship partners and things like that, like really, really useful. But, you know, in the, in the meantime, departments can absolutely like organize panels and like pay people to like come and give talks in the same way that they pay, you know, professors to come and give talks about their research, like pay people in industry to come and just talk about their job and like what they, how they got there. I think professors can also just get on LinkedIn 
and start like forming their own connections with people who are out of academia. And then that way, when their students come in and they're like, what careers can I have? Professors can actually give advice of like, oh, I know this person who does this. That was like the only, one of the only useful things that like a faculty member did for me was my graduate advisor put me in contact with someone she knew who had been a postdoc who had moved into UX. And she was like, you should talk to Anna. Like Anna can help you more than I can. And that was actually like a really useful conversation. Um, so the more the professors can do that, the more the professors like have a network of people outside of academia, the more they can actually help their students. What it has me thinking too is it's not that doing a PhD in and of itself is this horrible thing. I do think I do like what you're saying about how how you're actively drawing on the skills that you that you developed in the PhD program, but now it's time for this again, this next step where we don't know what it looks like. It's in this kind of it's infancy of translating PhDs into into having fulfilling, meaningful careers. And I think that your experience is really is really inspiring and really valuable because you're also um, making that a part of your identity. I mean, that's how I found out about you, at least online. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I mean, that, that part was like kind of funny and it's about, not like something that I intended to happen at all. Now I feel like I'm too deep and like can't leave and I like, I feel like that every time I'm like, no, I'm going to quit. I have so many people who are like, no, like you can't go. Like you've been so helpful. I'm just like, oh, I don't really don't want to be a social media influencer, but like graduate departments are failing you. So like, I guess I have to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <clears throat> seems like another, like very on brand for you. You, I don't know if I should do this. No, no, you should. You should. <laughs> uh. <laughs> well, there is a place for PhDs out in the world and we just, we have, you know, responsibility to kind of present ourselves in a way. Oh, for sure. And hopefully convince academia at large to offer us the training necessary to at least even think about the transferability of the skills that are useful that we, that we acquire. So thank you so much. Um, this was so wonderful. Any closing remarks? Um, you know, if you're, if you're interested in leaving academia, I would definitely get on LinkedIn. Um, you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on LinkedIn, whatever, whatever you prefer. Um, but I found that LinkedIn's the place to find people who have PhDs, who have moved into all kinds of careers and just like networking with people and chatting with people. You can learn a lot about, you know, what careers are out there for I, I just like search like developmental psychology PhD and I can see everyone who's a developmental psych PhD and what they're doing and like where they work. And yeah, I think it's just been, I feel like a lot of academics like kind of hate LinkedIn and I definitely hated LinkedIn for a really, really long time. But now I, I see that it's like a really valuable place to actually do a lot of this learning and exploration. And you can see how many PhDs are out there in the world that are not in academia. Like most, most PhDs are not in academia. So it's a good resource for for sure. That's very helpful. Well, thank you so much again. This has been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks again, Ashley Ruba, Ruba PhD, PhD, for joining us on Academic, Academic Defectors. Defectors. I'm, I'm your host, Jillian Marshall. Thank, thank you, listeners, for tuning in, in and catch, catch you next time. time.